We're reading this morning from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you that more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. The forceful men lay hold of it. For the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you were willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. For what can I compare this generation? For what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of the tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the Day of Judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the Day of Judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. All things had been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Gary. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 11. There was a time, uh, I guess it's been 10 years now, when Carissa and I spent a summer in Japan. We were leading a team of college students on a trip, a summer trip uh, through the Navigators Campus Ministry. And when you spend time with college students, you tend to eat a lot of food. Uh, and I remember one time picking up a, a chocolate-filled pastry and taking a big bite of it, only to discover that wasn't chocolate. Uh, it was called anpan, 
which is a bun filled with a sweet bean paste. Uh, another occasion, I remember um, going for a grape popsicle, only to discover that wasn't grape either. It was more sweet bean paste. Now, expectations are a very powerful thing. I have nothing against bean paste in particular. Um, I could see how over time somebody might come to actually enjoy it. Um, but when you're biting into a pastry and expecting that sweet, soft, cocoa frosting-like goodness, and instead you get a mouthful of some unidentifiable flavor with the consistency of refried, refried beans, there's just something disorienting and, and disappointing in that experience. Uh, now, that's a very ridiculous example But the kind of disappointment and disorientation that comes from unmet expectations, we see a a very substantial picture of that in our chapter this morning. In fact, this passage is all about misplaced expectations about Jesus, and specifically about his deeds, his actions, what he's been doing. The word deeds or works marks both the beginning and the end of the passage that we're looking at this morning. And you don't see that very clearly in the NIV translation, but but look at it in the ESV, which should be above us here. Verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, the actions. And then verse 19 The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Same word there, with Jesus personifying himself as wisdom. So the passage opens and closes talking about the deeds, the actions of Jesus. And what does it focus on in between? And then a little bit afterwards, the actions of Jesus. When when John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask uh, Jesus a question. Jesus points them to his deeds in verse 4. Go back and report to John what you hear and you see. And then he gives a list of all the things he's been doing over the last few chapters. Similarly, the end of the passage in verses 20 through 24, they focus on Jesus' great works specifically his condemning the cities where he had performed most of those works, yet where they had not trusted him and repented. And so Jesus has been incredibly active in his ministry so far. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen him announce the good news to all sorts of people. We've seen him heal the sick and raise the dead, teach the crowds, cast out demons, call to himself a a band of followers, to carry on his mission. But what Jesus does does not always line up with what people expect him to do. For John the Baptist, something was missing. For the crowds who followed him, there was nothing to write home about. There was a gap between what they expected of Jesus and what he actually came to do. And and that gap caused and can become quite disorienting and confusing for people in trying to figure out just who is this Jesus. Should we trust him? Should we follow him or not? And we can run into that exact same confusion. Every single one of us has certain ideas and expectations about who Jesus is. Ideas about how he should be running things right now, what should happen if I actually follow him, and give my life to him? What will happen if I don't? And when those expectations go unmet, our life can become pretty disoriented. Our hearts can begin to fill up with with doubt and with fear. We can become disenchanted with God, a bit underwhelmed at the idea of him, even angry because it feels as though he's let us down. But the question underneath all of this for for John, for the crowds, and for us, do our expectations line up with who Jesus really is and what he really came to do? Are our expectations shaped by God's promises in the scriptures 
or by our desire to get rid of some problem or, or by our preferences for how life ought to work. What Matthew is showing us this morning is that when our expectations about Jesus line up with God's promises and scriptures, then his actions actually confirm his true identity as king. We see what he's doing and we know we can trust him. But if our expectations don't line up with the promises of scripture, then, then we run the risk of missing Jesus as the crowds did or even dismissing him as John was tempted to do and looking instead for our hope and our life in, in something or someone else. So let's pray and let's look at this passage and let's ask God, who is Jesus really and what do his actions say about that and how we should respond? So let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that we would hear your voice this morning. We ask that we would see in these pages a picture, a true picture and revelation of who you are and that our hearts would be engaged by your spirit to know you more. So, Lord, be with us. Give us ears to hear, we pray. Amen. So chapter 11 begins a new section in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Jesus just commissioned his apostles and sent them out on a mission to announce the kingdom to the lost sheep of Israel. We saw that in chapter 10. What's interesting is we don't actually hear how that went for them. Instead, the story moves forward. And verse 1 tells us that Jesus went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And as he's teaching and preaching, he's encountered by some followers of John the Baptist uh, with a message from their teacher who is currently in prison. So verse 2 says, When John heard in prison about what Christ was doing, his deeds, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, we learn more about why John the Baptist is in prison uh, later in Matthew chapter 14, how he publicly opposed Herod the Tetrarch, uh, the ruler of Judea at that time, for marrying his brother's wife, Herodias. Uh, rulers do not like being told what they're doing is wrong, and so John is now in prison for that one. And, and here he is sitting in prison, the very man whose ministry had prepared the way for Jesus, the very man who had baptized Jesus to launch his ministry, now hearing reports about his deeds and, and scratching his head saying, I don't know, maybe he's not the guy after all. Now, it's pretty remarkable that someone like John the Baptist could have doubts about Jesus and who he is. We often think that, that doubting or at least acknowledging that we have doubts is one of these cardinal sins that, from which there's no forgiveness. And God does call us to a steadfast faith, but he also wants us to be honest about our faith and to be honest when we do have doubts, when we do have fears and questions, not to bury them in shame, nor to use them as an excuse to ignore Jesus, but to wrestle honestly with them. And that's what John is doing here. That's why he's sending his followers, go figure this out, because this doesn't make sense to me. So where does John's doubt come from? What is it that triggers it? It has something to do with the report that he's heard about Jesus' deeds, his actions. Something seemed to be missing from them. He had expected to hear of, of Jesus' actions, including something, and, and that wasn't there. And we're not actually told exactly what it is in these verses, but based on John's earlier message in chapter 3 and based on Jesus' reply to him right now, we can pretty safely suggest that what was missing for John was Jesus' actions of judgment. Remember back to chapter 3, how John had called the nation of Israel to repentance, to turn away from their sin and turn back to God. Their long-awaited king was coming and they needed to prepare to meet him by turning away from, 
from sin and rebellion and toward God in faith and repentance. And for those who refused to do that, to turn to God, John warned them that this king is coming in judgment. He says in Matthew 3:12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a nice agricultural metaphor there. You know, you, you, you after the, the grain is trampled or something to, to loosen the kernel from the husk, you kind of grab the fork and you pitch it into the air and the wind blows the chaff, the worthless part off, so that you've got just the grain left. The chaff, what do you do with it? You burn it. You get rid of it. That's the picture of the judgment that comes for those who do not repent and turn to King Jesus. That was John's message. As one author describes John's confusion, he says, John had warned those who wouldn't bear fruit with repentance that, quote, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Again, Matthew 3.10. But now in prison and soon to die for proclaiming God's righteousness and the coming Messiah, John wondered where this axe was and when Jesus was going to start swinging it. God had promised to deal with his enemies when the king comes. And John says, from my perspective here in prison, it sure looks like they're still winning. So, so he's got doubts about, is this Jesus really the one? Because this is what I thought would happen when he came. Listen to how Jesus responds in verses 4 through 6. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away or take offense on account of me. Now, on the one hand, that sounds like Jesus is just listing off his recent itinerary, kind of summarizing chapters 8 and 9 for us. But there's something bigger going on in his response for those who have ears to hear, or at least ears tuned in to the Old Testament scriptures. Nearly every single action he lists here can be found in the book of Isaiah, as illustrations of what God would do when he returned to Israel, when he brought them out of their exile, and when he established his king once again on David's throne, the long-awaited Messiah. So listen to Isaiah 35, 4-6. Say to those with fearful hearts, those under judgment in exile and so on, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance and with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue sing or shout for joy. See, hear that picture of how Jesus' miracles are echoing that promise in Isaiah. Or consider Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners. And continuing a little in verse 2, to, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus is saying several things with his little reply that they're supposed to take back to John in prison. First, he's saying that his actions do in fact testify to who he is as the long-awaited king. The promises of Isaiah are being fulfilled before your very eyes through his miracles. Second, he is subtly reminding John that he has not forgotten about judgment. That's part of what Isaiah promised. We heard it in both of the verses that I read a minute ago. And before this passage ends, Jesus is actually going to pronounce 
judgment on cities who have not turned and believed in him. But he wants John to know that before the final judgment comes, the good news must first be proclaimed to the poor. The message of God's kingdom and God's salvation must first go forward. And then third, Jesus is reminding him that, yes, John, judgment will come. Even judgment on your captors who war against my kingdom, but not before you're released. There's something interesting that's missing from Jesus' quotation here, or allusion to the Isaiah passages. He doesn't reiterate the phrase, freedom for the captives, or release from the prisoners. He left that one out, which is a subtle way of saying, John, your vindication will have to wait till the end. It'll have to wait till the end. The promises of God include both judgment and salvation. John was expecting mostly judgment. And he nearly missed the Messiah because of it. Our expectations today tend to be the opposite. We're expecting mostly salvation. Deliverance from our problems, whether it's from sin or, or, or from sickness or anything like that. We, we expect God's love to show itself. One author writes a little bit cheekily, um, most people assume it's God's job to love them. He needs us. He pines for us. And if we pay him any attention, go to church, do a good deed, recycle, maybe meditate while listening to soothing music, then we think we've done him a really big favor. We presume upon God's love. That's our expectation. And so when we come to a passage like what we're going to read in a minute in verses 20 through 24, or like Matthew 25, or like parts of Revelation, or like a lot of places in the Bible, and we read of the very real threat of judgment and hell for those who reject Jesus as king, we tend to kind of scratch our heads and ask, is this the guy? Or should we kind of be looking for someone else? That's not what I expected. But do our expectations of Jesus line up with Scripture? We should expect Jesus to come and save. But should we expect him to judge sin? Another way of asking the question, does sin really deserve to be punished? Think about God's holiness. We've talked about this a little bit recently. But think about his holiness. If God is truly holy, if he is above us and unlike us and over us and bigger than us and and morally perfect in every way then just the slightest imperfection makes us unworthy of his presence just the the smallest act of of disobedience makes us rebels against his kingdom so if god really is holy then sin really does have to be judged think about evil If evil is truly evil, and we can describe that in lots of ways, but let's think about the big ones, you know, the wickedness of genocide or of racism or abuse or coercion, deception, violence. If if evil really is evil, then God in his love must respond to it. He must if he truly loves those against whom the evil is being committed. He cannot turn a blind eye to it. Think about the cross. If sin doesn't deserve to be punished, then the cross was an unnecessary part of the story. It's in the cross where God's judgment and God's salvation actually meet. The judgment we deserve for our sin and rebellion was poured out on Jesus in our place that he might save us from our sins. So for those who've trusted in Christ as their king and savior, there's no need to fear the judgment of God. Jesus has paid the price in full. He's taken the cup of God's wrath and he has drained it to the dregs. There's nothing left for those who trust him. 
But if that's true, that means that for those who do not trust him, they remain under God's judgment. The promises of God in the Old Testament tell us to expect both salvation and judgment from this king who comes. Judgment in the end for those who reject him and continue in their rebellion, but salvation today and forevermore for those who turn from sin and turn to Christ in faith. And if you have not done that, I just want to stop for a minute and invite you to consider who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You know, whether you've grown up hearing about all of this or whether you wandered in here today and you're not even sure why. If Christ is not your king, if he is not your hope, if you've not confessed your sin to him and and taken hold of him in faith, not by being good enough, not by by making it up to him, by, by showing up for church and doing all sorts of super spiritual things, but simply by saying, God, I've got nothing else. All I have is you. If you have not come to Christ in faith, I urge you, do. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is king. Today can be the day of salvation. So John was confused because it felt like something was missing. The crowds are confused because they don't feel like there's much to write home about when they see Jesus' actions. And and so Jesus takes John's confusion as an occasion to address the crowd's confusion about him as well. Because John wasn't the only one disenchanted with Jesus and his actions. And so in verses 7 through 19, he addresses the crowds first by reminding them of, of just what John the Baptist came to do and how it's really actually more about Jesus than him. So look with, uh, with me at verse 7. Jesus starts with a, a couple of rhetorical questions about John the Baptist, and the answers are obviously no. First he asks, what did you go out into the desert to see? You know, John would draw these incredible crowds. People would go out and, and listen to him preach. What is it that you went out to see? A reed swayed by the wind, which is I think, kind of a, a picture of a, a stalk of papyrus just kind of blowing back and forth, a, a wimpy spokesman, uh, hard to pin down, blown along by the latest fads and opinions. Is that what drew you to John? No. Well, verse 8, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. And John is not some kind of court prophet in the service of the king, kind of a groveling yes man who's kept on payroll just so that the king can get God's permission to do whatever he wants to do. John didn't draw a crowd because of that. No, John is a prophet of God, steadfast and deadly serious. And he's willing to stand before the powers that be and boldly proclaim God's word, even if it lands him in prison, which it has. Jesus acknowledges the rising conflict around God's kingdom that was triggered by John the Baptist's ministry. He says in verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, or perhaps another way to to translate that, has suffered violence, and forceful or violent men take it by force. So, so John was involved in serious conflict. People were warring against the kingdom of God because of his ministry. Think of Herod in particular. So, so nobody doubted John's tenacity as a prophet. But Jesus says there's even more to John than this. He tells the crowd in verse 10 what John's ministry was really about. This is the one about whom it is written... I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Here Jesus quotes the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book we find in in our English Old Testaments. And that book is largely a rebuke against ancient Israel uh, for their faithlessness to their covenant with God. Yet God will not leave them in their faithlessness. He won't leave them in their 
infidelity, yet he's going to come to them both in judgment and in salvation, according to that book. And he will send his messenger in advance to prepare the way for when he comes. Jesus says that John the Baptist is that messenger. He's the guy Malachi was talking about. He's the one that Malachi 4.5 says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. He'll bring about repentance or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Jesus says in Matthew 11:13 to 15, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah to come. He's the one Malachi was talking about. Not a, a resurrected Elijah, but one who came, as Luke puts it, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He takes up his mantle and his ministry. He prepares the way for God to return to his people. Let he who has ears hear. So the true significance of John was not his chutzpah before Herod and his violent oppression, but it was the the pivotal role that he played in the dawning of God's kingdom on earth. As Jesus describes him in verse 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. This guy is the final prophet All of the prophets in the law have been building up to his ministry to announce the kingdom of God, the coming king, Jesus. So he's the greatest in that respect. And yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Because John still lived in the shadow looking forward. He didn't live to see the kingdom dawn through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so those who see that and live in the light of the sun and not the shadow of promise, they're actually greater and more blessed than John. So here's Jesus' point to the crowd. If that's who John is, and that's what his ministry was about, preparing the way for God to come to his people, that means that Jesus really is the one they've all been waiting for the one who would come in both judgment and salvation to rescue his people from their sins, to turn their hearts back to God, to make right everything that is wrong in this broken and fallen world, the brokenness of our hearts, the brokenness of our bodies, the brokenness of our relationships with one another, of our relationship with God. Jesus came to bring all of creation under his rightful and merciful rule and every great work that he's been doing up to this point has been a signpost pointing to the fact that God's kingdom is dawning. But the crowds are unimpressed. They've been following Jesus around, listening to him teach, seeing him heal the sick and cleanse the lepers, but it's nothing to write home about. Or at least it's nothing so amazing that they're willing to surrender their lives to this king. In fact, nothing seems to please them or meet their expectations. Jesus compares them in verses 16 to 19 to a bunch of complaining, unappeasable children. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out, to others, their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. They're unsatisfied by John's ministry of repentance in the face of judgment and with fasting and mourning over sin, kind of like a funeral. Verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. Yet neither are they compelled by Jesus' ministry of celebration of the reconciliation of sinners with God. Verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nothing seems to satisfy them. 
So instead of repenting in the face of judgment and turning to Jesus as their Savior, they stand over Jesus in judgment, weighing his actions, deciding for themselves whether his ministry has any relevance or credibility. Not at all unlike the way we often put Jesus on the stand as though he has to make a case to us of whether or not he's worthy to follow. Why is it that sometimes when we read these stories, and this, I, this happens to me, you know, I read a story or I pray and I see God answer prayer or I see Jesus change somebody's life and my heart just remains unmoved by it. Why does that happen? I'm unimpressed. You know, it's nothing to write home about. For some of us, perhaps, this whole thing just doesn't seem relevant. I mean, how does a miracle-working king who got himself killed 2,000 years ago help me pay the rent this month? How does it help me get that girl to call me back? Whatever it is that, that is dominating our life right now. Some of us feel that we've tried God and that he's let us down. We prayed, we went to church, we tried to read our Bibles. Our child still died of cancer. The panic attacks, the loneliness, the addiction, fill in the blank. It's still winning. It's still wearing me down. I don't want to minimize for a moment the very real pain and suffering that... that this life is sometimes marked with. But we have to ask, are my expectations of what Jesus is doing shaped by God's promises in Scripture or by my desire to get rid of this problem or my preference for life working out this way? God did not promise in his Scriptures a perfect pain-free life. Not yet, at least. There will come a day when King Jesus returns and he completes his kingdom and in a heavenly new creation. And in that day, as Revelation puts it, there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So there is a day coming. But we live in the meantime between the cross and the new creation, where suffering still has a part to play, but where God still rules and is still with us even in whatever suffering we experience. So, so we can't come before Jesus as though we are giving him a chance to prove himself. We are not the judge. We do not have enough wisdom or perspective to be the judge. There are things at work that we cannot see. Things God is doing, even through pain and suffering, that we may never see clearly this side of heaven. But if Jesus and his ministry, according to God's promises in Scripture, if we see his ministry according to those promises, then we know that we can trust him. He has the wisdom to know what he's doing. We don't. He has all of the wisdom he needs. In fact, he is wisdom personified, as he says at the end of verse 19. And wisdom will be justified by her deeds. Though this world may dismiss or ignore him, Jesus' actions demonstrate that he truly is the king of heaven and earth. And there's much at stake in missing Jesus. John wanted to see judgment come now. Jesus said, wait. But it will come. It will come for those who miss him or who dismiss his deeds, who reject him as king and therefore forfeit the grace that could be theirs, the grace that he offers to all people. And our passage concludes with, Jesus' harsh words against three cities where he had done his ministry. Verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed. 
because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Scholar Tom Wright says about these verses, These warnings are among the most sober and serious words Jesus ever said. He had lived in Capernaum, after all. He knew the people. They were his friends, his neighbors, the baker where he bought his bread, the people he met in the synagogue. He knew Chorazin and Bethsaida, just a short walk along the lakeside, And he knew, despite all the remarkable things he'd done there, that they were bent on going their own way, following their own vision of God's kingdom. And he knew where that would lead. Sin really does deserve to be punished. That's why Jesus died on the cross. So that we can be rescued from the Father's judgment and instead enjoy his love. Don't miss Jesus. Don't dismiss him just because your expectations seem to be unmet in him. Go back. Look at his word. Ask God to give you eyes to see him for who he truly is. To give you faith to trust him and follow him. And to keep trusting and following even when life doesn't makes sense. He is the one we've been waiting for, even if we never knew it up to this minute. He's the one who alone can put our lives back together in part now and fully in the resurrection to come. He's the one who alone can restore a broken relationship with his father because he made my sin his sin, your sin his sin, so that His righteousness might be credited to us. He's the one who stands before his father day by day, interceding for you. Who sent a spirit to give you life and strength. He is our savior. He is king. He alone has the wisdom, the power, and the authority to make all things new. His name is Jesus, and he is all our hope. Let's pray. Lord, how desperate we are for you. And how thankful we are that you've revealed yourself to us that you've not left us without a witness, you've not left us alone in our sin, in our fear, in our doubt. You've come to us gently and lovingly. You've done everything necessary for us to know you. You simply call us to come. So Lord, may we do that, and not just as a one-time thing where, where we put our faith in you and we begin a relationship with you, may we come to you every day, every minute in utter dependence on your grace, in utter dependence on your spirit. May we be encouraged as we see who you are and what you're doing. And may we be reminded, even when the wheels fall off in life, that, that Jesus can be trusted. He's going to to bring all things to completion in the end. This will turn out well. God, may you help us and remind us by looking at your actions in the scriptures, the way you minister and and guide us and, and rescue us and change us today. 
May all of that remind us that you are a faithful and trustworthy God, that you are who you say you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we respond as the crowd should have responded to Jesus um, during his ministry with belief in him and expectation of, of his power to come. So stand with us as we sing Rain in Us.
If you would like to pray with somebody, we always have available up front members of our prayer team over here by the organ after the service. We invite you to that. If you've got little ones downstairs, uh, especially the little ones with the tags, four-year-olds and kindergartners, uh, you can claim those, I believe, in the room down at the end of the hall past the kitchen. Um, we don't have enough food in the kitchen to feed them through the whole week, so it's a good idea to get them this morning. Now receive the benediction. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.